Welcome to The Alchemical Mind. This is episode 40 of the podcast, so that's exciting. Not only because it's a big number, but because it marks a kind of change into what we're going to be doing on the podcast a little bit. We've done a lot of uh, basic stuff, and I've been teasing this for a while, that uh, at some point we'll have to quit doing the basics and get to some true gnosis, some real esoteric stuff. So moving forward on the podcast, that's what we're going to do. I'm still going to do some of these more practical topics, so we're going to follow the uh, How to Find Truth series, we're going to do stuff on knowing imagination versus actuality, or things like that. This is all still true, but when we dive into some of the texts that I usually dive into on the podcast, we're going to be going a little bit deeper and a little more esoteric, talking a little bit more about occult stuff. And that doesn't mean that if you are kind of a, involved in an orthodox belief system that you can't follow along, by all means, I recommend you do. Because the purpose of finding your true gnosis, your knowledge of who you really are and how the world really works, is to have an open mind to some of these ideas. So I think in particular with this episode, I highly urge you to keep an open mind because we're going to be taking some leaps into the subject matter. So today we are going to be doing part 7 of Gnosticism, and that includes talking about the exegesis of the soul. And I think this is the perfect text to move forward in our understanding of the esoteric because it hits a lot of different notes. So we're kind of going to begin talking about the exegesis of the soul, what that is, what it entails, the tradition, what it means, but it's going to lead us into a very deep discussion about the sacred feminine. And I think that's one of the most important aspects that we often miss in mainstream spirituality. And the reason for that is, of course, after all these thousands of years, things have kind of become very male-centric. And, you know, one of the things that I've always talked about since the beginning of this podcast is the ability to, number one, have two thoughts in your mind and try to unite them. That's the message we've kind of been getting from the Gnostics over these uh last few episodes but a little bit more beyond that it's not just about keeping two thoughts it's about male becoming female female becoming male what that means this is not some you know trans thing or anything like that this is a a spiritual desire to become whole because ultimately if you are trying to follow down this path of understanding and gaining gnosis then you have to become a whole person and, you know, over thousands of years, as I always say, language plays an important role. The language has come to mean different things. And the central message of a lot of these teachings is lost through the abuse of language. Now, we are going to get a little bit into the abuse of language in this episode, but not too much. Uh, that might be something that we get a little bit deeper in a couple weeks and then once we start doing some work on the Kabbalah and Kabbalistic traditions we'll definitely be diving much deeper into that because there's a lot of interesting rabbit holes you can head down when you look at the meaning of language but there is going to be one key thing about the abuse and change of language that we're going to be talking about today and that is something that you should all be very familiar with and that is the Alpha and the Omega. Now, if you grew up in a Christian tradition, I'm sure you'll be very familiar with it. Jesus always calls himself, you know, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the beginning, the end. Of course, it stems from the Greek alphabet, 
with the alpha being the first letter of the alphabet and the omega being the final letter of the alphabet. But I urge you to always try to look deeper into the mystery because that's the only way to achieve the wholeness is to understand the mystery. And there is a very, very deep mystery in the alpha and the omega that we're going to be diving into today. And what is that? Well, you should already be familiar with it because we talked about it in introduction. We talked about it in the previous episode as we did the Gospel of Philip. That is the union of the male and the female. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, what are you talking about? They're two letters. I urge you to go and take a look at these letters. Tell me what they look like. Of course, some of you will be familiar with the Greek alphabet, at least with these letters in particular. So you may already know kind of what I'm alluding to. In the fact that the alpha, the leader, the father, the first, looks like, we'll say male genitalia. Like a lingam, for those of you that are familiar with Hindu tradition. And the omega looks like a womb, a vulva, a female aspect. And everything, of course, is enclosed between the Alpha and the Omega because when those two come together, they create all of existence. You see how simple that was? Some of this stuff is not rocket science. You just got to look into the meaning of things in order to find a mystery. So we're going to be diving into the Omega part because everyone's familiar with the male aspect. Most modern traditions are very male-centered. They always have male deities at the top. And, you know, as we talked a little bit about the Gnostics over these last uh, previous six episodes, now into the seventh episode of the series of Gnosticism, we do see kind of a similar imagery where the father is the first. But as I always say, don't take the language too literally. The Gospel of Philip talks about that. The Gospel of Thomas talks about that. The Gospel of uh, the Secret Book of John talks about that. All these books mention it. Don't take the language too literally. Look at the mystery within. That is what's important. Now, yesterday, as I was getting ready to record this episode, I had an amazing synchronicity. Amazing synchronicity. I was listening to a YouTube channel, actually, Doc Illusion. He was streaming live, and he began talking about this incredible book that uh, I'll be reading from today. It's called The Magdalene Mysteries, and I'm going to be quoting a couple times from this book. We're not going to go into it yet. Because uh, I'm not done with it, and it's a gigantic book. It's 563 pages. I do highly, highly recommend you pick this up if you get a chance. It is an incredible look at the sacred feminine. And how we tie the exegesis of the soul to the sacred feminine is in a couple different ways. Number one, the soul is always seen as a female element. Uh, in fact, in some of the greatest traditions... And, of course, the traditions that influenced the Valentinians and the Simonians, which we'll talk about tonight, and some of the other Gnostic sects, the three main ones being the Jewish faith, in which the word for soul is neshama. It's a female word. It means breath, life, soul, or spirit. The Greek, of course, psyche. Everyone should be familiar with the word psyche. That means a little bit something different now, but it's also a female word. And it means, again, soul, mind, spirit, breath, life, invisible animating principle. And a tradition which I've alluded to several times, the Hindu tradition, the Buddhist tradition, that went from the east into the west and was definitely settled in the Roman provinces during the early 2nd century BC. In Sanskrit, you have the word buddhi, 
which is a also female word stemming from the root bud. You Buddhists should be very familiar with this word. It means to perceive. And of course, that is what the soul does. It is another word for consciousness. As folks like to say in alternate New Agey circles, the great mind, the great consciousness. This is also a female word. And what does the consciousness do? It perceives life. It takes in life. It receives. And of course, the word receive itself is very important, and it will come up in the exegesis of the soul. So I wanted to talk about the word receive. Like many words in the English language, it might be different than yours, of course. The word receive comes from a French source, which ultimately comes from a Latin source. And it means basically to take back. So the suffix sieve comes from cupero, which means to take. And then re is a prefix meaning to do again. So literally to receive means to take back. And that's what Sophia and Zoe and Eve and the soul, as we'll talk about tonight, and some other characters that are kind of egregores of this archetype of the soul, like Helen of Troy, etc., in order for them to get forgiveness from the invisible spirit, the, the, the all-father, whatever, the, the great God, they have to repent. And when they do, they receive the grace and can come back into the fullness, into the pleroma. And that's what we're trying to do here as well. We're trying to receive some kind of knowledge in order to be less ignorant, to understand our place in life, to understand what some of this is about. And of course, those of you that are clever should already automatically know what the difference and the opposite of receive is, and that is to deceive, to give away, not to take back, but to take and give away. Because when you're deceived, what's happening is you're giving away your knowledge, you're giving away your spirit, you're giving away your authority. That's why many, many moons ago, I don't even know when that was, a couple months ago, the podcast is not that old, I did a series on authority. If you've missed that, go back and listen. I think it's three parts. We'll be diving back into authority at some point for a fourth part in the series. But that is what happens when you are deceived. You lose your soul. You lose your authority. You lose your energy to live your life. You live someone else's lie someone else's deceit. And so as a result, moving forward on the podcast, we're going to be diving very deep into these deceptions that we are led on in modern society. And of course, this is nothing new, right? Because these people were talking about it thousands of years ago. This has been the human condition for basically all of human existence. Some people get it and they choose to receive it. And some people don't. And they continue being deceived. And this relates very much to this idea of the sacred feminine because the sacred feminine is no longer a thing. Sure, if you're, uh, you know, like a, a Gardnerian Wiccan or something like that, you still believe in the goddess. And, and of course, there's other traditions that still do. But at least in terms of the major belief systems in the world, that's no longer the case. I want to make it clear, as always, everything I say should be taken with a great assault. This is not gospel. I'm not preaching to anybody. All I'm trying to do is get understanding for myself and share whatever understanding I get on these topics with you. 
You make up your own mind. You are the ultimate authority. You are it. So if anything that I say in this particular episode, and of course moving forward, kind of clashes with your belief system, by all means, don't take that as an attack on your own personality. We're going to go really deep into that in the next episode when we talk about tribalism. Because tribalism, of course, applies to things we generally see in society like, you know, race relations, political relations, religious relations, but also within yourself, with you fighting the urge to know more and the urge to not know more because it might redefine who you are. And since we're doing this in a Gnostic context, in particular, you know, we've been doing uh, Sethians, we've done Valentinians, we're going to do a little bit of uh, the Simonians tonight. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's completely counterintuitive and you should throw away any Christian education that you have if you're a Christian. And I, I'm singling out Christians because this is tangentially a Christian tradition. Don't think that this is counter to what you've been raised on. This is just a different way to look at it. And I think it's important to always try to find new ways to look at things because that's how we grow. That's how we learn. That's how we educate ourselves. That's how our soul gets the forgiveness in order to return to the Father. And you can use whatever words you want. At some point, we're going to go into medieval Christian mysticism, and the terminology will be a little more familiar to anyone that's in an Orthodox Christian tradition. Because the language hasn't changed all that much, at least in terms of the, the mystical and esoteric aspect of Christianity, in you know, 500, maybe 1,000 years. But the language is very different 2,000 years ago. And of course, the language is very different between the East and the West, and everywhere in between. But ultimately, the purpose is the same. The message is the same. But the language is different. And funny enough, the format of the exegesis really goes into that. Because not only does it kind of retell this whole notion of the divine feminine falling from disgrace. Again, if you are not familiar with the creation story, go back and listen to the secret book of John, where you learn all about how Sophia made this mistake and created a being that kind of created this false reality in the Demiurge. The Simonian look at this origin story is a little bit different. And you know, if you're familiar with the text, you might disagree with this as well. Uh, a lot of People that do research into this kind of work think of this as a Valentinian text, and I can see why, and we'll go into why that may be the case. But to me, this is very obviously a Simonian text. And so, I haven't talked about Simonians yet. Who the hell are the Simonians? This is when things get really interesting. They're getting interesting before we get to the text, and why is that? So the Simonians were a sect of Gnostics. Not necessarily Christians, they began as Gnostics, and eventually moved into somewhat of a Christian Gnostic sect. There's a couple folks here involved that some of you will be familiar with. The first is going to be John the Baptist. Everyone that's uh, read the Bible probably knows who John the Baptist is. He's the guy that baptized Jesus. The second figure is Simon Magus. Which, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you may have heard of Simon Magus because he shows up in Acts as kind of this guy that tries to buy his way into the grace of the apostles. That's where we get the, the term simony from, or simony. Basically, in the story in, in the Bible, I think it's in Acts, uh, Simon tries to buy 
basically buy his way into the clergy to learn the mysteries. And the apostles are like, eh, you, you need to go back to where you came from, bro. That's not how we work here. And Simon got really pissed off and went and started his own thing. Like anything with these early Christian texts that talk about someone that's not a member of the inner circle. And by that, of course, I mean the apostles and those that they taught. It's kind of deemed as a heretic. And this is a tradition that goes back to the first century with Christianity. And the problem, of course, is with a lot of these people, we don't have very many firsthand sources. A lot of the stories that we get of these people come from church fathers much later, into the threes and four hundreds. So, you know, hundreds of years after they lived. And so it's hard to take the information that's given as actual, as factual, because, for one, these people weren't there. So we're looking at, you know, third, fourth, fifth. Six hand sources, who knows? And the other is they didn't believe exactly what the orthodoxy believed in, and so they're deemed heretics. And the stories that are told of them put them in a bad light. This is human nature. This is not anything new or you know particularly uh, Christian in any way. This happens all around the world in all kinds of traditions. I was just watching a documentary actually on the uh, the Dragon Emperor, the first emperor of China, and really fascinating guy. But of course. All the stories about him come from a source 100 years after his death, from a different dynasty entirely, and so they portray him as kind of this bad guy. They're like, you know, hooray, he united China, but at the same time, you know, he, he killed his people, all these people died in the great, building the Great Wall, etc., etc., and you got to take these things with a grain of salt. Because history is always written by the winners. we got to remember that. And if history is written by the winners, how do they speak about the losers? Well, of course, they're going to speak about them as losers. The same is true for even John the Baptist. Because for those of you that are raised in a more orthodox Christian tradition, you're familiar with John the Baptist as the guy, yes, who baptized Jesus, but he wasn't the Messiah, right? He was just a guy that heralded the, the coming of the Messiah. And if you told the Johannites this, they would laugh in your face. If you told the Mendeans this, they would laugh in your face. The Mendeans are very interesting because it seems that they may be similar to the Sabians. So those of you that are familiar with uh, Islamic tradition or even Egyptian tradition may have heard the name Sabians. These are kind of star-worshipping people that somehow the Muslims didn't kill when they were conquering uh, that section of the world because in some ways they believed in Yahweh, in, in the one true God, right, in Allah. And so they kind of left them alone, even though that's not entirely the case. And this is where we could easily get into talk of conspiracy. And if you're a regular of this podcast, you know I don't delve in conspiracy on this show. All I'm seeking to learn is the truth, or what I perceive to be the truth. That's why I try to train myself to recognize truth from complete BS. And I think a lot of the things that we know about these traditions are complete BS. Now, I'm going to make a statement that some of you may disagree with, and that's fine. But I will make a statement that some of these traditions that we see as maybe not necessarily having humanity's best interest in mind, we'll say. Something like the, the quote-unquote cabal that a lot of people like to talk about. I would argue that some of these traditions actually continue to hold the true mystery. That the only way forward is to unite the male and female into one. 
And I'm going to give some examples of that as we talk about this because to me, it just kind of clicked. And this is, of course, not to say that there may not be some kind of quote-unquote cabal in charge of things. That may very well be the case. But I think what is happening is some of these groups are perverting the teachings that originally created them. There's some interesting rabbit holes you can go down here. I recommend you do some research on, for example, the Brotherhood of the Serpent. I think that's a very interesting topic that has kind of gone very deep down the conspiracy rabbit hole. And not everything has to be a conspiracy. The problem is when things are hidden, when they become occult in the true sense of the word, not this Satan-worshipping thing that we think as, uh, as being occult, that's ridiculous, absurd people think that that's a corruption occult simply means hidden that's all it is and over time even those traditions become corrupt now why am i mentioning all this what does this have to do with the exegesis what does it have to do with the divine feminine what does it have to do with john the baptist or simon magus or any of these people well of course john the baptist had his own ministry already established in various parts of the world his base of operations is actually oddly enough in alexandria and Simon Magus went to school in Alexandria. Of course he did. Everyone did back then. And he came from a long-standing tradition of baptism. Baptism was around way before Christianity. We talked about this a lot in the last episode, Gospel of Philip, because the rebirth of the body through water was important. I mentioned this little story where you know everyone's just kind of used to either being touched on the head or like a sign of the cross is made on you or you... Like, you know, take a dive into a pool or whatever, that's the baptism now. And that's not the way it used to be. The way it used to be is you were dunked into the river and whoever was baptizing you kept you there until you could no longer breathe, till you almost suffocated to death, till you almost drowned. And then they brought you up because that was the rebirth through water. And why water was very simple. Water is the manifestation of the female aspect of God. How many traditions have this same imagery? With the female being water or earth, and the male aspect of the divinity being space or the void or the sky. These are the two elements that intertwine to create the wholeness of creation. This material element and this ethereal element. This is why Sophia has to fall from the fullness and gain this materiality. Because that is how all things get created. Otherwise, you just continue to have emanations from the Great Spirit and Barbello emanating, emanating ethereal entities. But once she falls out of that realm of the fullness into the world of materiality, that's no longer the case. Now we can really attain the fullness, and that's why the Demiurge and the Archons and all these other figures, even gods from other traditions, are always jealous of humanity. Think about like the Greek tradition, for example. Those gods, whoo-wee, they loved humanity. But why? Because they hated us so much. Because we have all of the infinite potential. They are purely spiritual ethereal entities. Whereas mankind is a union of both. I always talk about the as above, so below, and the thing that I always talk about that people forget is what happens in the middle of that. That is where creation is happening. Because mankind is a material being with a spiritual element. We are the perfect union of both. 
This is why we had so many arguments in early Christianity about the nature of Christ. Well, was Christ born a man? Or was there a spirit that came in and overtook him? Or was it a union of both things? What is it? Because it's important for this exact reason. It is ultimately about understanding the origins of human nature. Are we just purely physical beings? Are we physical beings being overcome by a spiritual element? Or are we both? And ultimately, it doesn't matter, right? It's, it's semantics. But there we go again, back to this idea of language. So John the Baptist had this tradition of baptism that had been around for quite a while. And to his group, he was the Messiah. In fact, there were groups that stemmed out of Johannite sects that continue into that. I mean, even to the Muslims, which are not Johannites or related to the tradition at all. But there may be some elements that kind of leaked into that part of the world. Because there's an interesting connection between all these people. And remember, we think of these places all as being isolated because, you know, so long ago and everyone was so backwards. They didn't communicate with each other. Blah, 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 all, all the stupid ideas that mainstream has kind of brought into our minds. These people were always in close contact with each other. You know, Simon Magus was a Samaritan. And if you're not familiar with Samaritans, they're a, a very interesting kind of people. They consider themselves to be the true Jews. They believe that the, the mainstream Jewish orthodoxy was heretical because they believed you know, there was kind of a falling out when, when the first temple was built. And they believed that they followed the original tradition and then the people that followed Moses kind of went in, a, in an offshoot sense in, in a different direction. And as a result, they corrupted what Judaism really was about. This was the Samaritans. Did you ever hear about any of this in church? Of course not. All you hear about is uh, there's this really nice guy, uh, you know, in that in that story. Really nice guy. He helped this guy that got robbed or mugged or whatever. Helped him and fed him and, you know, helped him heal and all this stuff. The good Samaritan. And, of course, because we always work in dualities and opposites, Simon Magus is known as the bad Samaritan. So this was the, the Gnostic sect of John the Baptist, the Johannites. And, you know, they end up splitting in multiple directions as well. You have the Sabians, you have the Mendeans, you have the Johannites, which they're still a Johannite church now. It's a Gnostic Christian sect. And we're probably going to be having a guest from the Johannite church coming on fairly soon to talk a little bit about this whole Gnostic idea. They're still around today. I mean, sure, the traditions are a little bit different. But the Johannite sects kind of went and moved out east into Arabia and Iraq and all these places. And you can go down further rabbit holes because, you know, there's, there's always stories about people when they bring in new beliefs into places. So there's, there's stories about the, uh, the Samaritans worshipping like Nergal, which is a Sumerian god, so there may be some connection there, etc., etc. But we're not going to talk about that quite yet. We're not, we're not quite there yet. This episode, we want to focus on the sacred feminine. And to John the Baptist, that was very important. Now, that belief system progresses when Simon Magus takes over the Johannite tradition after John the Baptist is decapitated. And it evolves in a very interesting way. Now, I would argue that the Johannites were already worshipping some sort of divine feminine element. And the reason I say that is because there's 
an interesting connection in the way that the structures of these two groups, the Johannites and, of course, the early Christians, kind of set up the membership around the group. Of course, if you're familiar with Christianity, you know that there's 12 apostles, and each one kind of corresponds to one of the 12 solar months, each one of the zodiac signs. And why is that? Because Christianity is kind of more male-focused, and we haven't talked really much about this whole sun-worshipping element. Those of you that are familiar with conspiracies may be familiar with this, because you know guys like David I talk about it all the time, but it, but it is true. And so as a result of this, they're setting up the structure with 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, to correspond with the 12 solar months, the 12 signs of the zodiac. But the Johannites were different. John didn't have 12 guys around them. He had 30 guys around them. He had 30 apostles, quote-unquote. And why did he have 30? The answer is very simple. Because there's 30 days in a lunar month, roughly. It's not exact. Like 29 and some change, I think. But you get the idea. In, in a system that's led through a divine aspect of the, or a female aspect of the divine, you're looking at a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. And as a result, you have a different kind of year. You end up having 360 days in a year, 30 times 12. And different traditions account for the five extra days in different ways. The, you know, the, the Egyptians had this whole ritual about the, the five days that were not on the calendar. I think the Mayans had something similar where these five days are not on the calendar. I mean, they're on the calendar, but they're not part of the calendar. They're kind of their own separate five days outside of the calendar. And these are kind of accounted for in many traditions to some sort of solar myth because ultimately it is part of the solar calendar to have these extra five days. You have the two days in the spring where the sun is not moving past a certain point. There's no change in the degrees that it rises and falls in the sky. And then you have the three days right before the winter solstice. That's why Christmas is on the 25th of December. And why Christmas is the birth of Christ. Because he is the sun being born. Three days after the sun does not change in degrees in the sky. This is a fascinating topic. We're going to get really deep into astrotheology at some point because uh, it's, it's worth mentioning for many traditions. Because part of the mystery that we have forgotten is how to understand the way that the stars, and when I use the stars I mean planets and, and moons and constellations and stuff, affect the world here on Earth, as above, so below. Now, what I find really interesting with all of this, in particular to As Above, So Below, is how this idea of As Above, So Below has changed. Because in the literal interpretation of the saying As Above, So Below, and of course it goes further, right? As within, so without, uh, all this stuff. There, there's much more to it than just As Above, So Below. But it's, it's talking about these union of opposites. One thing that I find really interesting is that in these traditions that understood the mysteries... As above, so below meant a literal interpretation of what's in the skies, in the heavens, with what's on earth. And what should become very obvious to you with this episode and further episodes going forward as we tackle all of this stuff, we're going to go into pop culture, we're going to talk about into media, into books, into language, very, very deeply, 
is that as above, so below no longer becomes a literal interpretation of the above on the below, but it becomes a reflection of the above. And of course, when you have a, re a reflection, you don't have an actual interpretation of that thing on the below. You have a negative image of it, the opposite image of it. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, go, I would assume your bathroom. I'm sure everyone's got a mirror in a bathroom. If you go into a bathroom, you look in the mirror, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Because what you see in the mirror is not an exact representation of you. It is a backwards image of you. So just by looking at it, you say, yep, there I am. There's a picture of me. There's an image of me on the mirror. But if you really understand the mystery of what's happening, you know that your right eye is on the left in the mirror. Your left eye is on the right in the mirror. And this is what's happened with all these traditions. This is exactly what's happened with all these traditions. This is why we get conspiracy theories. Why we get so many divergent traditions. Why so few understand the mysteries. And even when mysteries are exposed, you're not getting the real meaning of it because you're just seeing a reflection of it through some bullshit that somebody fed you. That is the problem. And this is why we're going to start next episode talking about tribalism because this is part of it. Because part of the control system is to have people fighting amongst each other so as not to realize the truth. Now, funny enough, I would argue that whoever this is doesn't need to be doing this because we naturally do this we are naturally at odds with ourselves but of course it helps to have subliminal messaging in advertising and through movies and television and books and the creation of conspiracy theories to kind of talk about some of these things but not really give you what's going on because there are interest groups involved Groups love to keep their power. And that's why I mentioned the Brotherhood of the Serpent earlier. Because this is kind of, I don't know where the story came from. But there's this idea of the Brotherhood of the Serpent that came down, you know, thousands thousands of years ago. It, uh, it was kind of the, the first true Brotherhood of Secret Knowledge. And of course it's called the Brotherhood of the Serpent because they understood this divine female aspect. We're not going to talk about the, the serpent symbology yet. But serpent symbology is very important throughout the entire world. And the meaning of that symbology has changed a little bit depending on the culture that kind of cultivated stories around it. But it is ultimately a group that valued the divine feminine. You don't need to worship the divine feminine as the ultimate entity. Because these groups understand that there's two sides. You have to have the opposites in order to get the whole, in order to reach the center, to find the middle path, you have to have these opposites. And these groups know this, and that's why they put such emphasis on the divine feminine, on the female aspect of God. Because other traditions don't even bother with it. They obscure it with names like Holy Spirit, or Psyche, or any of these things. A couple episodes ago, I posted a fantastic skit from George Carlin about kind of how language has devolved over even just the last couple decades. Or something like shell shock, where you hear the word and you understand exactly what somebody's saying. Shell shock sounds terrible. Then you have, you know, these other words that arise out of it, and eventually you come up with post traumatic stress disorder. Well, that sounds a little nicer, right? 
doesn't really sound like there's anything wrong with you. Uh, like you, yeah, you suffer some trauma, but it's a disorder. We can fix that, right? We can make it orderly again. And then it loses even more meaning when you just use the initialism, PTSD. That, now it means nothing. Now it means nothing. It's shell shock. That's got power. And of course, words have power. That's why in so many traditions, some sort of divine being usually generates the world simply through the word. Because that's how we create our world. We create all of the things that you see simply through words. And what are words but just symbols? We're going to go really deep into symbols when we talk about imagination versus actuality. Everything you see and do and think about is all symbols. None of it is real. It's all symbols. It is just an interpretation of what your experience is. You can never truly lay down the experience. And this is why so many people experiment with things like psychedelics. Because once you get into a state in, with, with psychedelics and any other mystical tradition you want to use, you know, go lock yourself up in a cave for, for 40 days and 40 nights and just meditate. You don't need psychedelics. This is why these things give you a different perspective on reality. Because now you're no longer seeing the world through symbols, but actually experiencing reality being reality not just being a participant of reality but being reality itself now yes you can have hallucinations where like entities pop up maybe they talk to you you hear music you fly through space whatever but i would argue these things are actually not local to the experience i would argue this is a way for your conscious brain to catch up to the experience and create out of the pure experience some sort of symbol to explain it. Now, that may happen very fast, of course, fractions of a second. But this is, this is what's happening. You're interpreting pure existence. Just like in your waking life, you interpret pure existence. None of the things that you see around you actually exist. They're just vibrations of whatever, molecules, strings. Maybe you want to talk about ether, whatever. It's just vibration. Everything's vibration. And you, of course, you have to be very careful because you, you start talking about vibrations, people start getting a little woo-woo. And I don't like to dive into woo-woo in this podcast. But again, the woo-woo is just symbology. It's just language. It's just a different way to interpret it. You interpret it however you want to interpret it. The point is to understand the message. I say this almost every single episode now. The messenger is irrelevant. The message is what's important. Existence is what's important. Not being an actor in a play, but being the play itself. Because that's what this is all about. Everyone, you know, so focus on who's winning the election. Tonight was a presidential debate, right? Who, who did better in the, in the debate? Who did worse? Who said this? Who said that? Who cares? What does it matter? It doesn't matter. I couldn't even watch a thing, by the way. I watched two minutes of it, and I, I decided not to. I'm going to go I'm going to go record this podcast because that to me is more important to dive into what these people are trying to tell us. Now before we get into the exegesis of the soul, I want to read a, a short little passage from this book The Magdalene Mysteries. Again, highly highly recommend it. I'm uh, about a third of the way through now. I read a bunch of it uh, between last night and today and uh, I love it. Can't recommend it enough. I'm going to be using this a bit moving forward we might even do uh, an episode on this completely but it's going to touch upon a lot of different things 
And I, I want to read from this before we get into the exegesis so we get some understanding of the discussion after we talk about the exegesis. Jesus gave his disciples and cohorts spiritual names that reflected their essence. He called Peter the rock. He called Judas the knife. And he called his beloved spiritual partner Mary the portal. Mary, of course, Mary Magdalene. Meaning mystic yoni gateway. Haha. -ha. Now there's the Hindu relation. Remember we talked about the Alpha and the Omega at the beginning. The Alpha being the Lingam. The Omega being the Yoni. Magdalene is a word of great feminine power. It derives from the Hebrew name of the ancient mother goddess Ma'agadala. I hope I said that right. I don't speak Hebrew. My, my apologies to my Hebrew friends. Meaning great mother. As well as the Aramaic Magdala and the Hebrew Migdal. Both meaning elevated, magnificent, or tower. You ever wonder why so many Christian churches have those two towers? Side by side, there's a reason. This is why. This is, of course, not just purely a Christian thing. You see this in Hindu temples, Buddhist temples. You see this in Muslim uh, houses of worship. I believe if you go on the Hajj to uh, to see the, the black stone of Mecca, that temple also has the two towers. This is why. The union of the male and female. In the Semitic languages, Mag and Dal are among the oldest primitive roots signifying great, powerful, magical, and portal or doorway, respectively. So Mag is great, powerful, or magical, and Dal means portal, door, etc. Now this is part of the key, and this is where Simon Magus will come in. They are shared across other language families. The Latin Maga is a female magician, the feminine version of Magus, or Mage, or Mage. The Biblical Greek Amygdala that should be familiar to you, uh, psychonuts. Derives from the same roots and means almond or almond tree. How interesting. So, a seed. The primary mother goddess of the Gnostic sacred serpent sects were called Amygdalus, representing the almond tree, the feminine tree of life. The first tree to flower in the spring. The almond tree is the wakeful tree, Hebrew shadek, or shaked, that is the early blooming, the first to wake from the winter sleep, sprang from the blood of the mother of the gods. It is also, here's the key, the vulva-shaped mandorla, or magic doorway, portal of the goddess. In ancient Sumerian, the language of Inanna, who we'll meet later in our story, the phrase mugdala means shining vulva gateway. The name Magdalene, as its origin, means magic doorway of the great mother the primordial goddess, the tree and source of life. It held the secrets of a primeval cunt theology that became decoded as Mandorla of Mary. How fascinating. Did you ever look any of these things up? Did you ever wonder what these words mean and why they're put into these texts? There's a reason. When I was talking about the secret book of John, we went into this a little bit. Because some of the entities in that book, their names get translated and some keep their original meaning, their, their original word. For example, Sophia, which should be translated because it's Greek for wisdom. But in many of the texts, it's not translated as that. It's personified as a woman named Wisdom. Same with Eve. Same with Zoe. These words in themselves have meaning. But by not knowing the meaning, by not introducing the meaning, you are hiding the mystery. 
of the female mother goddess, the divine feminine. You see how this is all connected? None of these things happen in isolation. None of these things are irrelevant to each other. That's why I said, come this episode, episode 40, moving forward, things should start clicking with you. And if they don't click, it's because you're not getting the basis of it. That's, that's the only thing. And I'm not saying go back and listen to the previous 40 episodes. That's preposterous. That's a, whatever. How many hours of content is that? It's got to be at least 60 hours of content by now. I'm not going to ask you to do that. But what I am asking is for you to educate yourself, for you to get the gnosis for yourself. All I want to do in the podcast is talk about it. But like I've been saying for at least 20 episodes, there's going to be a point that we get to on this podcast where we can't do this anymore. We can't just talk about basic stuff because if you just keep it to the basics, we're back to the same BS. We're just back to dogma, to hiding the mystery. And now we have come to a point where we need to explore the mystery. Even to this day, iconography of Mother Mary is often held within an almond mandorla, a coded wink for those who know that there is a secret Mary mystery waiting to be revealed. The symbolism of the Magdala encompasses both the sacred doorway of the woman's womb and the mystical womb of consciousness sought by the great alchemists, shamans, and initiates. This divine gateway was also symbolized by the rose. And those who follow the Magdalene mysteries were known as initiates of the Rose Line. I know some ears just perked up because, of course, this is where the Rosicrucians got their name from. We're going to get back to this interesting aspect of the whole thing. This mandorla, or mystic rose, also suggests the amygdala region of the brain, the intuitive feminine feeling center in all human beings, which is a portal to the cerebral cosmic mother consciousness and can initiate profound awakenings. Using this lunar wisdom, priestesses initiated others into the intuitive, visionary, divine love of the Christ mysteries. And this is why I said a couple episodes ago, everyone knows Mary Magdalene as the whore, the prostitute. This is not the case. This is not some woman just selling her body for money. This is an aspect of the sacred feminine. The tradition of priestesses slash prostitutes goes way beyond the traditions in the Middle East. We're going to talk about the Illusion Mysteries and some of the other ones very, very shortly. But this tradition is not isolated to this region. It's not new. It was around for thousands of years before this. And I would say maybe tens of thousands of years, at least 10,000. Which those of you that are familiar with uh, astrological ages is the age of cancer, which would be the age after the Golden Age. And what is the primal aspect of the age of cancer is... The Divine Feminine. That's what it is. So these traditions are much older than anything else that you may come upon. Let's get forward because this will set things up. This is where things get really interesting. And by the way, we're, just, we're still in the introduction of this book. We haven't even gotten to it. The earliest shamans in the archaeoanthropologic record were shamankas. They were women. They were adorned in the color red with mineral paints. Why red? Red is the color of blood, the menstrual blood. If all this sex talk is going to gross you out, I promise you it's only going to, go, it's going to get worse from now on because when we get to the exegesis, it's all about sex. The figures were carved on cave walls with hands raised up in the orans and prayer positions of magical spiritual invocation. Their vulvas featured prominently in Paleolithic art with, this is important, with V and M vulvic symbols engraved on stone and bone, later called witch marks in medieval times. Their womb vulvas were considered the greatest source of their mana, 
their spirit power. Over time, this ancient lineage of womb shamans would gradually shapeshift into priestesses of Mary, worshippers of the goddess woven into the garland of her red thread of sexual and menstrual womb wisdom. Mary is a title that means see, beloved, or awakened, and the first symbolic art created by humans was an M, along with wavy water lines, engraved on a seashell on the islands of Indonesia 500,000 years ago, showing us the ancient spirit of the mermaids of Magdalene. The mysterious letter M is a doorway of primeval sea magic, or original mother matrix. Now this is fascinating. I urge you to go and look at the evolution of these letters. You can find them very easily. Look up the evolution of the letter M from, you know, very ancient Phoenician alphabet until the modern letter. And you can see this in particular with the Phoenicians because the Phoenician letter is exactly this. It is a letter M with one of the legs being a little bit shorter and it goes into waves because it signifies this aspect of water, which stems from the mother goddess. The amniotic fluid is important because it stems from the womb of the mother. That's what the waters are. Now, I posted a picture on Twitter about this uh, tonight, actually. So it's probably, it might be my last tweet, maybe, maybe a couple before. Just uh, go find me on Twitter at MindLChemical and you'll see it. I posted part of the picture that's represented here. Uh, the one that I posted was the Phoenician Canaanite womb on the altar scarab stamp seal from about 1000 BCE. And it shows the symbol of the Omega kind of in this emblem. And the other part of the picture that it showed was the modern-day M Omega symbol of the St. Mary Cathedral of Sheffield and the Mary Chapel of Glastonbury Abbey, which is an Omega symbol made to look like an M. And why is that? Because the Omega simplifies the womb. Uh, and how does that happen? There's actually a picture here from one of these uh, rock paintings, Sumerian Dancing Room Shaman, which is from 5000 BCE. And it shows a very wide-hipped woman and her legs are creating this symbol of the Omega. How interesting. Because, of course, the female receives and the male aspect deceives. What does this have to do with Simon Magus? Well, interestingly enough, I'm glad you asked. I already mentioned that John the Baptist had this baptismal tradition that in some ways revered the feminine aspect. Simon Magus took it even further than that. Of course, you can realize by his name, Simon Magus, that he was a Magus, and we just discussed the origins of the word Magus, stemming from these female magicians, right? The Semitic language root mag, meaning great, powerful, and magical. The Latin word maga, female magician, the male version being, of course, Magus. And Simon Magus was seen as a magician because he practiced what? Come on, Crowley fans, sex magic. You got it. Simon Magus was a sex magician because that's what is part of the mystery. That's how you entwine the male and female aspects of the divine when you create and perform your ritual in the material world, in the below. You no longer have these two separate but complementary spirits. You have to recreate that story of creation on earth as above so below and how do you do that through sex magic this is why people were doing sex magic they were uniting the male and female aspects into one now i know some of you think well this is this is satanic devil worshiping this is some crazy stuff 
this is what the devil worshippers do. They they kill children. They they sacrifice them on the altar. They 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 do sex magic. I've seen eyes wide shut. I know what happens. Do you know what happens? Or is this one of these lies that have been fed to you? I'm not saying these groups are good or bad. That to me is irrelevant. What's relevant to me is that they understand the mystery. And this is why they have the power, because they know the mystery. Now, if we go back to this thing that I keep throwing around about the Brotherhood of the Serpent, these people were good people. They were established in order to hold on to the mysteries, to educate mankind in mysteries when civilization was corrupted or fell or whatever. That was their purpose. But of course, some of you are familiar with the saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. What happens when people begin to hold a little power? They get greedy. And this group, the Brotherhood of the Serpent, starts separating itself into multiple groups and different traditions. And over time, they evolve. And these become the basis for you know, Jesuit conspiracies, which I would argue the Jesuits do have a interesting female worship element. We'll get to that at some point. You get this conspiracies about the Freemasons. Same thing. And guess what? They also have a divine feminine that they worship. And you have other crazy story conspiracy theories that come about that you know, have been around for a long time. For example, the Knights Templar. I never thought I would talk about the Knights Templar on this podcast. But guess what? We're, we're at that point. So let's talk about that. There's all kinds of conspiracies about the Knights Templar, right? That maybe they, they knew some secret that they had. You know, That's why they, they became so powerful, so rich. The church had to shut them up, and so they gave them a bunch of money. That's why they were the bankers of, of Europe, etc., etc., and uh, and it turns out that they were devil worshippers. Uh, they they worship Baphomet. Well, that may be, but guess what? Baphomet is also the divine feminine. Have you ever taught about that? You haven't. Why? Because you've been indoctrinated to think that Baphomet is some sort of devil worshipping thing. That's ridiculous. That's not at all what it is. You don't believe me? Go do your research. Don't go to a conspiracy website. Go read some astrotheology stuff. Go read some real mythology stuff. Not some bullshit that's being fed to you people that try to sell books and make money off of you. They're deceiving you. They don't want to give you knowledge. They want to keep you stupid. Baphomet has nothing to do with Satan or the devil. Stupid. It's a stupid medieval idea that was brought around to persecute these groups because these groups knew the mysteries. Do you get it? Wake up, monkeys. You don't get it. These people knew the mysteries. That's what the mystery of the Nice Templar is. They found out the secret of the Divine Feminine when they went on the Crusades. You know, the stories of them, funny enough, here's the connection, having and worshipping, in some regards, the severed head of John the Baptist. That, that may be the relic. The head of John the Baptist. And why would they do that? John the Baptist isn't, I mean, you know, is he a martyr? I guess maybe he's a martyr. But he's not held in the highest regard, right? I mean, he, he didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah in some of the texts. Why would they worship him? Why would they have his head? Because John the Baptist knew the mystery of the sacred feminine. That's the mystery they were holding on to. And how do you stop these people from gaining more power? How do you stop them from proliferating the mysteries? How do you stop people from understanding these mysteries and learning it from yourselves? It's very simple. You label them as devil worshippers. 
you get it? This is what's happening. This is the conspiracy. Not some other bullshit about cabals and whatever, reptilians and all this other stuff. It's all imagination. This is the mystery. The mystery of the divine feminine. Now, if you grow up in a strictly patriarchal system, this may be hard for you to understand. Because for you, God is this big, big, big you know, omnipotent guy in the sky with a luxurious beard, because that's the most masculine thing, right? That's why I'm growing my beard, so I can be extra masculine. Actually, that's not true at all. And the symbol of the beard is a little more than just a masculinity thing. We haven't gotten to sun worship yet. We'll get there, I promise. But this is the mystery. This is what these people understood. And Simon Magus created and, and changed the Johannites in a way that focused very highly on the sex magic. And many of the priestesses were priestesses. They were women for the Simonians. Because they have to be. You're worshipping the, the divine feminine. They have to be. They hold the knowledge. They hold the seed of life. You get it now? You understand what's going on? And all of this to explain what Simon Magus has to do with this and why the exegesis of the soul is not a Valentinian text. It is a Simonian text. It is of the Johannite tradition. This may become a little more obvious when I start reading it. And God, I'm already an hour in. I haven't even started reading this thing. Okay, it's short. It'll be fine. Let's read a little bit about Simon. Justin and Irenaeus, of course, very early church fathers. Those, those names should be very familiar to a lot of you. Are the first to recount the myth of Simon and Helen, which became the center of Simonian doctrine. Epiphanius of Salamis also makes Simon speak in the first person in several places of the Panarian. And the implication is that he is quoting from a version of it, though not perhaps verbatim. I'm reading from Wikipedia, by the way, if, if you're curious. As described by Epiphanius, in the beginning, God had his first thought. This is how the Simonian Gnostic creation myth is different from others. And this is why this is important to the exegesis. In the beginning, God had his first thought, his enoia, that means first thought, which was female. And that thought was to create the angels. Now, this is where things are a little different from the Valentinians and the Sethians and other groups in that there's no, like, in-between, right? In, in those cosmologies, you have... You know, the, the great spirit, uh, the Bethos, and that creates Barbello, this divine feminine. And then those two begin emanating other beings, eventually getting to Sophia. What the Simonians are saying is that, I mean, maybe, but like, oh, that's irrelevant. God just creates this divine feminine aspect, and she creates the world. Just a different way of saying the same exact thing, right? The, the fall of Sophia. And that thought was to create the angels, or in that Valentinian or Sethian interpretation, the, the archons. The archons are the angels. The first thought then descended into the lower regions and created the angels. But the angels rebelled against her out of jealousy and created the world as her prison, imprisoning her in a female body. Ha ha. Now this makes a little more sense, of course, because we don't really understand why Sophia fell and why she's stuck in the material world. For the Simonians, it works a little bit differently. There were the angels, the archons, they were jealous of her, of the Enoia, of the first thought. Because she contained the power of creation. And so they put her in a female body. Thereafter, she was reincarnated many times, each time being ashamed. This is, again, another interpretation of these different emanations of archons, right? But the, the Barbello, into Sophia, into Zoe, into Eve, etc. Her many reincarnations included Helen of Troy, among others. And she finally was reincarnated as Helen, a slave and prostitute in the Phoenician city of Tyre. 
God that descended in the form of Simon Magus to rescue his Anoia and to confer salvation upon men through knowledge of himself. Now, again, this is the same myth, just told in a slightly different way. The, for the Simonians, Jesus kind of goes away, Simon becomes Christ, right? And the Christ, again, is just a term, the anointed. And the idea is the same. God emanates his son in the Logos, in Jesus. That being comes down for Sophia through whatever emanation at this point. For her to regain her place in the fullness, in the pleroma. So in this cosmology, everything continues to remain 100% dual in a male and female aspect. The emanations are irrelevant. They are basically egregores of these two archetypes of male and female. And I love this. I love this. This clicked with me the other day. I tweeted about this too. Imagine, just for a second... Every single one of you is an egregore. Have you ever thought about this? I've never thought about this. I mean, I have some, some inklings of maybe this being a possibility. Uh, if you missed the episode where I recounted this uh, really amazing psychedelic experience I had about uh, almost two years now um, ago, go back and check that out. I think it was episode 25. And, uh, and I talked a little bit about this because that was kind of what happened in this trip where I met my brother, who was kind of another male aspect, and we each had complementary female aspects. My female aspect, my wife, as was explained to me, was kind of subservient to my brother and his wife. And that's kind of why I was lost. And in order for me to figure out who I was, I had to find a way to free the female aspect. That awesome dream, by the way. Hallucination, whatever you want to call it. It was an amazing experience. And the more I think about it, you know, even now, two years later, I'm still learning new things about it because I'm getting more and more knowledge and new and different ways of interpreting the language and making it an actuality to remove the symbolism and the imagery. That's an interesting thought. Have you ever thought about that? What if you're just an egregore? What if we're all just egregores? All that exists is these two primal beings and everything emanates out of them. Everything is just uh, a new story told through a different perspective. That's not all too dissimilar from what we talked about before with you know, Brahman, for example, where every person is a different perspective of an ultimate consciousness, an ultimate cosmic consciousness. And this is why there's traditions you know, in the Americas, the Hindu tradition, etc., that talk about time being cyclical, where you get this idea of there you know, being no new things to learn, just remembering things. I think that was Plato or Socrates. Because it's just the same story being told over and over and over and over and over again through different aspects, through different manifestations of the divine. They're telling the same story with different characters. And the outcome usually ends up being the same. Sometimes it's different. And why is it different? Well, you know, we're playing out with all these possibilities. Let's just see what happens. Because ultimately the nature of God is constant creation. I love that idea. I'm going to be exploring that a lot more in the coming months. For as the angels were mismanaging the world, owing to their individual lust for rule, he had come to set things straight and had descended under a changed form, likening himself to the principalities and powers, though through whom he passed. These are, of course, the archons. So that among men he appeared as a man, but he was not a man, and was uh, thought to have suffered in Judea, though he had not suffered. But in each heaven I changed my form, says he, 
in accordance with the form of those who were in each heaven, that I might escape the notice of my angelic powers and come down to the thought, the Anoia, the first thought, Sophia, who is none other than her who is also called Prunikos and Holy Ghost, through whom I created the angels, while the angels created the world and men. Now, this is also another idea I find fascinating, and one that happened to me in this psychedelic experience, where I asked my brother, this figure that I was talking to, if I was just making him up, if I was hallucinating. And he laughed and he said, no, and yes, you're hallucinating me and I'm hallucinating you. None of this exists. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is too much. This is what Hippolytus had to say about uh, the Simonians. Hippolytus says the free love doctrine, which of course that was very much in vogue with the Simonians because they believed in sex magic. So of course they were all about free love. They were the, the first hippies. I mean, I'm sure there were groups like this beforehand, but, you know, we can say this, I guess. Hippolytus says the free love doctrine was held by them in this fierce form and speaks in language similar to that of Irenaeus about the variety of magic arts practiced by the Simonians, and also of their having images of Simon and Helen under the forms of Zeus and Athena. Again, remember, Simon was educated in Alexandria, so he's very much familiar with Roman mythology, with Greek mythology, with Egyptian mythology, with Judeo mythology. And he's kind of combining all this stuff into one because he sees how similar they all are. And that will become evident when we read this, this text. But he also adds, if anyone on seeing the images either of Simon or Helen call them by those names, he is cast out as showing ignorance of the mysteries. Ha ha. And of course, Simon's not the only one that does this. Jesus does this in some of the texts that we've done. In the Gospel of Thomas, one being the example. When he's talking... To, uh, to Thomas, and he's like, hey, come on, guys, what am I? And they each call him by the different name. He's like, you guys are all idiots. Let me, let me give you the mystery. Simon was doing the same thing. If you come into the place of worship and you say, oh, like, cool, there's a, a statue of Simon and Helen. Or you say, oh, yeah, Zeus and Athena, they signify Simon and Helen. Guess what happens? Kick you out. Why do they kick you out? Because you don't get it. You're ignorant of the mystery. Because you think these are representations of these two people, Simon and Helen, you're an idiot. That's not what they mean. These are aspects, cosmic aspects. And if what you're doing is making some kind of dogma into this, of taking the whole imagery literally, you're not worthy of the mystery. Get out. You're deceiving yourself. Get out. Really interesting, right? Now, I'm not going to read from all of the exegesis. And again, it's very short. It's like, you know, less than 10 pages. Uh... Hell, even less than that. It might be eight pages. Very short. You can read this for yourself. I will read some of it because I want to uh, dive a little bit into the language here. And again, it's very sexual. And this is why I would argue that it's not a Valentinian text. And and the reason why people think it's Valentinian is because there's a lot of imagery of uh, the bridal chamber, which, of course, we did in the last episode when we talked about the Gospel of Philip. The, the Valentinians held this aspect of the divine chamber in high regard. Because that's the, that's how they believed in the salvation, and and I talked about some of the examples that you know personally growing up in a a Protestant denomination, we also had this idea of the bridal chamber, where after you know in the end times after the apocalypse and all that stuff, uh, after the events of Revelation, and uh, by the way we are going to do an episode of Revelation, I don't know when that's going to be, it, it might be soon, but uh, there's there's a lot in there that people don't get it because they just take it too literal. Uh, anyways, after all this happens, there's going to be kind of this wedding in heaven, right? Where Jesus is going to marry everybody. 
Jesus marries everybody. And, uh, and so for the Valentinians, this bridal chamber idea was very important. It is key to the salvation of the soul in this text. But because of the imagery and its ability to throw in uh, texts from the Septuagint, from the, the Torah, from the, the Old Testament, and there's even mention of Helen in here and, and Homer. Actually, Homer is explicitly mentioned in this text. Uh, it's very obvious that this would have to be uh, somebody a little more interested in multiple traditions and, and in not hiding it. Right? The, the Valentinians had some of this as well, but they were hiding it in Christian language. The Simonians didn't do that because they didn't care. They were bringing in stuff from all kinds of traditions and saying, hey, this is what we're telling you. These are all the same thing. Don't be idiots. If you think they're different things, you don't understand the mystery. Get out. All right, let's read from this. The Fall of the Soul While the soul was alone with the father, she was a virgin and androgynous in form. Of course, you'll be familiar with this by now if you listen to previous episodes. It is a female aspect, but it doesn't you know, have genitalia, and, and it's not necessarily like if you look at it, it doesn't look like a female because it's an ethereal being. She was a virgin and androgynous in form. When she fell down into a body and entered this life, she fell into the hands of many robbers. These shameless men passed her from one to the other and violated her. This would be, of course, an allegory to the rape of Eve, as we talked about in the Secret Book of John. Some raped her, others seduced her with gifts. They defile her, and she lost her virginity. Because, of course, she's no longer in the pleroma, in the fullness. She's in the material realm. And why she's being tossed around to different men? Because every person has a soul, and every person kind of treats that soul differently just like every man might treat his wife differently in her body she became a whore and gave herself to everyone and she considered each sexual partner to be her husband after she gave herself to shameless faithless adulterers for them to abuse her she sighed deeply she sighed deeply and repented now after a while she gets tired of this crap right just like any woman if you if you abuse a woman eventually she gets tired of it the soul is doing the same thing She's married to this person, again, an allegory to the, the Gnostic creation of Adam and Eve, where Adam is created from the earth, the Adamas, and the only way for him to gain life is for the Demiurge to breathe the spirit of Sophia through himself into Adam, and so Eve is born into Adam, not out of a rib, into Adam, because Adam is still an androgynous being. He is a male figure with a feminine aspect. And when the Demiurge realizes this, which makes him more powerful than he, he pulls the rib out and creates Eve out of that. Because now neither of these two beings have the full power, the union of the male and female. Now they're two separate entities. And this is why marriage is so important for these old traditions, because that signifies this union of male and female. That's how the human race continues. So finally, the soul gets tired of this crap. She's like, screw this. I'm done with this crap. Father, I apologize. I'm deeply, deeply sorry. But when she turned her face from these adulterers, the, uh, that she ran after others, and they made her live with them and serve them in their beds as though they were her masters. She was ashamed, and she did not dare to leave them. For a long time, they fooled her into thinking they respected her like faithful true husbands, but finally they left and abandoned her. She became a poor lust widow. She was helpless, and no one ever gave ear to her in her pain. She got nothing from the adulterers except the filth they left when they had sex with her. 
The children she had from the adulterers were mute, blind, and sickly. They were disturbed. Her father and high noticed her. He looked down on her and saw her sighing in pain and disgrace and repenting of her prostitution. She began to call on him for help, and she sighed with all her heart and said, My father, save me. Look, I shall tell you now I left home and fled from my maiden's quarters. Restore me to yourself. And when he sees her in this condition, he will consider her worthy of his mercy. For many afflictions have come upon her because she left home. Now, if you're an Orthodox Christian, this story is familiar to you too. It's just told in different words. Because why, for the Christians, why does Jesus come here? To repent your soul. To atone for the original sin. So he, God sends down his son so you can get that forgiveness. So the soul can retold to the fullness. You see, this is all the same story. These are not different stories. They're not different traditions. It's all the same tradition, worded in different words. Some traditions hide the mystery from you, and some don't. But they have to hide the mystery, because if they don't hide the mystery, you have no purpose to complete it, to realize the mystery. Your only purpose is to follow a path. And following the path is super easy, because guess what happens? If something goes wrong, not your fault. Whoever led you down the path, that's their fault. You fall down, not your fault. You're following somebody. You do something wrong, not my fault. He told me to do it. But if you know the mystery, you're creating your path. And then what happens? You are solely, fully responsible for yourself. And this, again, is not exclusive to these sects of Gnostic Christianity. This happens all over the place. This is one of the central tenets of Zoroastrianism. And we'll talk about the Zoroastrians at some point. Now, next up in the text, he talks about the, the prostitution of the soul. And, and we don't know who he is. It's an anonymous author. But in, in this section is when he's quoting from different uh, Old Testament texts. So he quotes from Jeremiah and Hosea, Ezekiel. And uh, then for some of the New Testaments, like he, he quotes from the letters of Paul. He says, The greatest struggle is the prostitution of the soul, for it comes from the prostitution of the body. Haha, because why? They're intertwined. They have to work together. Thus Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, I wrote to you in my letter, do not associate with whores, not meaning the whores of this world, or the greedy or thieves or idol worshippers, since then you would have to leave the world. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the world rooters of this darkness and the spirits of evil, the archons. That's who we're fighting against. That's who's prostituting our soul. The thoughts and ideas that come into our minds, that make us do stupid things, that keep us away from realizing our true nature. That's, the, that's what we're fighting for. That's the whoring we're fighting. Not prostitutes. Don't be idiots. These are not literal messages. Don't go after the prostitutes trying to make a living. Go after the real prostitutes, the ones that are raping your soul, the archons. And again, the archons don't need to be some physical cabal of people. This is the thoughts in your mind. If you forgot who all these archons are, and I did skip a large section which kind of named the archons, go back and read it for yourself. It's in the Secret Book of John. You can find it in other texts as well. Hypostasis of the archons, uh, the nature of the rulers, you can find it under that term. Go to the uh, Tripartite Tractate, any of these texts. You can go and, and read the names. Some of them will have the original Coptic uh, name or the Greek name or you know whatever language it was written in and some will have translations in English and you'll see that these are thoughts 
and and feelings that we deal with every day jealousy greed and envy and all these things right for example the seven deadly sins right you can you can count those as archons the archons are simply egregores of these archetypal things because ultimately this is all about archetypes why do you think carl jung was so deeply involved in gnostic readings why do you think the red book reads like something you would find in the nakamari library because it's all the same thing Everyone t always talks about the Buddhists being the first, uh, you know, the, the first self-help folks, the first uh, psych psych psychiatrics, the first psychologists. That may be true, but they may have gotten their knowledge from somewhere else. I have some thoughts on that. I'm not going to discuss that yet because that's going to go really deep down the rabbit hole. But it wasn't exclusive to them. These folks had it too. They're explaining these archetypes through egregorial manifestations, through symbols. That's what symbols are. Symbols are interpretations of concepts. Just like the archons are interpretations of thought and feeling. And maybe you and I are egregores of the divine. Going into the restoration of the soul. As long as the soul keeps running here and there, having sex with whoever she meets and defiling herself, she will suffer what she deserves. But when she receives the trouble she is in and weeps before the father and repents, the father will pity her. He will make her womb turn from the outside back to the inside so that the soul will recover her proper character. Why? Because when the, when the, when the soul has her organs on the outside, she is giving and deceiving herself. But when she gets the repentance, she regains her womb on the inside like the female so, so she may receive the full glory of the father. You see what the image means? It's very simple. you got to wake up. The womb of the body is inside the body like the other internal organs, but the womb of the soul is turned to the outside like male sex organs, which are external. When the womb of the soul by the father's will turns to the inside, she is baptized, and at once she is free of the eternal pollution forced upon her. Again, womb symbology, the amniotic fluid. Just as dirty clothes are soaked in water and moved about until the dirt is removed and they are clean, the soul is cleansed so that, the, the, so that she may regain what she had at first, her former nature, and she may be restored. This is her baptism. Then she will begin to rage like a woman in labor and rise in anger and rage at the time of delivery. But since she is female and cannot conceive a child by herself, her father sent her from heaven, her man, her brother, the firstborn. Now, yes, this might seem a little weird. Why is she marrying and having sex with her brother? Listen, you're being too literal. This is language. It has to be her brother. The, the eons are created in syzygies. They're androgynous beings with male and female aspects. And the word brother is just a way to signify this. It doesn't mean anything. The bridegroom came down to the bride. She gave up her former whoring and cleansed herself to the pollution of adulterers, and she was restored to be a bride. She cleansed herself in the bridal chamber. She filled it with perfume and sat there waiting the true bridegroom. She no longer went around the marketplace having sex with women she desired, but she stayed and waited for him, saying, When will he come? And she feared him, for she did not know what he looked like. She no longer remembered from the time she fell from her father's home. Yet by the father's will, she dreamed of him like a woman who loves a man. Right? She forgot what he looked like because she was no longer in the fullness. She was a material interpretation of the divine goddess. Then by the father's will, the bridegroom came down to her in the bridal chamber that had been prepared, and he decorated the chamber. This marriage of the soul is not like a marriage of the flesh. 
In a marriage of the flesh, those who have sex with each other become satiated with sex, and so they leave behind them the annoying burden of physical desire and turn their faces from each other. This marriage of the soul is different. When the partners join with each other, they become a single life. Thus the prophet said about the first man and woman, they will become a single flesh. And that is from Genesis. These partners were originally joined to each other when they were with the father, before the woman led astray the man, her brother. Again, an allegory to Adam and Eve and to the platonic idea of the androgynous nature of humanity. This marriage has, been brought, has brought them together again, and the soul has joined her true love and real master. As it is written, the master of the woman is her husband. Now, this is antiquated language. Again, don't take this too seriously. Let's uh, skip forward a little bit more into the rebirth of the soul. When the soul adorned herself again in her beauty, she was eager to enjoy her beloved. He also loved her. When she made love with him, she received from him the seed, which is the life-giving spirit. She bears good children by him and brings them up. This is the great, perfect, wonderful birth. This marriage is consummated by the fire's will. Again, an allegory to Sophia. Why is the world evil? Because Sophia wanted to create without consulting with her partner, with her brother, with the logos. And so she created this abortion, the demiurge. And that's what this is alluding to. Just different language. The soul needs to regenerate herself and become as, the, as she formerly was. So the soul stirred, and she received the divine from the Father, that she might be restored and returned to where she was before. This is resurrection from the dead. This is freedom from captivity. This is ascent to heaven. This is the way up to the Father. Therefore the prophet said, My soul praise the Lord, all within me praise his holy name. My soul praise God, who forgave all sins, who healed all your sickness, who freed your life from death, who crowned you with mercy, who satisfied you longing with good things. Your youth will be renewed like an eagle's. This is from the Psalms. Now I'm not going to read the next few things, but there's a, there's a section here on Odysseus and Helen. Again, because the Simonians believe that all these things are related. And Odysseus is just another form of the Logos. And Helen is another form of the Anoia, of Sophia. And this goes to what I was saying before, how all these stories are just reinterpretations of the same exact thing, the same exact message. And that's what the Simonians believe. And that's why I think this has to be Simonian. I mean, it doesn't really matter, ultimately, whether it is or not. But I think the, the language used is really interesting. And here it ends with a little section, again, from the Psalms. And this, of course, is in reference to the soul. I have been deeply troubled in my groaning. I shall drench my bed and cover each night with my tears. I have become old among my enemies. Depart from me, all you who do lawless things. For look, the Lord has heard my cry of weeping, and the Lord has heard my prayer. If we truly repent, God who is patient and abundant in mercy will hear us. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's it. That's the exegesis. Really simple. Really interesting, though. And kind of hides this whole theory of redemption and rejoining the Father in, in the fullness in a really cool allegory of marriage. Now again, the problem always becomes how much do, the, do you interpret this to be 100% factual? Are you a literalist or do you understand the mystery? Now I also posted on Twitter, and I think this might be my last tweet. Uh, again, mind the chemical if you want to find me there. A diagram of Simonian aeology. Uh, you know, the we talked about the eons and the archons quite a bit with the Secret Book of John. Again, I recommend you read that or go listen to the episodes. Very long. It's like four hours, so it's two two different episodes. 
but we talked about all these emanations and how it works. And the Simonians had a, in a different way of how these things emanated, how existence emanated. But I really enjoyed the symbols used to express this. And again, the eons are what's emanating directly from, from the Father, from the Bethos. For the, for the Simonians, they saw the Father as fire. And of course, the, the Mother becomes water, naturally. That's the opposite of fire is water. Just like for some traditions, you have the Earth as the Mother and the Air as the Father. These are the other two elements that are complementary to each other. And so the symbols become a little bit more allegorical, a little more alchemical, and that's why I really liked it, because, of course, the podcast is, after all, named The Alchemical Mind. And out of this emanation of the perfect intellect in the father and the invisible silence in the mother, you get this trinity, this triangle. Here we are back to the triangle with Pythagoras, in which you have this union that creates a third in the father, the mother, and the child. The sacred triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you want to look at it that way too. But again, there you lose the meaning of the divine feminine. And what we're trying to do is regain that because it's important to understanding our fullness. To go into the innermost to where the pleroma resides. If you don't catch the reference, go back and check out the Gospel of Philip. And so this triuneness is the incorruptible form, the universal mind, and the great thought. Again, just different ways of saying the mother, father, son, the mother, father, child, the Horus, Isis, and Osiris, the three aspects that create the four elements. That It's all the same thing, veiled in different words. Now, what's really cool is that these triangles in themselves have an opposite, because of course they do. They have to. <coughs> and this is how creation comes around in the first one as above you have the triangle of heaven sun and air the mind voice and reason and below that you have its counterpart in water moon and earth the female aspect reflection name and thought and when you combine these two what do you get you get all the eons the powers that are generated by thought and of course if you are picturing these two triangles joining in your mind, you get the symbol of the Star of David. Of course, the Star of David is not a Hebrew symbol. It has been adopted by Israel and, and modern Jews, of course, but it's got a much more ancient history. You find this Star of David symbol all over Hindu temples. And we're going to dive into what the symbol means at some point, but not yet. We're getting there. We're going to start breaking down all these different symbols to understanding what they really mean, what the mystery they're conveying is. Because otherwise, guess what's going to happen? You're going to continue to be deceived. You're going to continue to be ignorant and not understand that you are it. God, I just threw in like six traditions into one sentence because that's what it is. It's all the same tradition. I do want to wrap up with the Simonian idea of Eden, and I love this. Those of you that are into astrotheology may be familiar with the story, maybe you're not. But uh, you know, the the idea of astrotheology is that all religions and and myths and and ideas, belief systems, kind of stem from obviously the idea of as above so below. But that's kind of a a mystery way of saying we study the stars. And the Simonians had a really interesting way of looking at Eden. And I want to I wanna read this real quick 
before we start to wrap this up. There will be one more thing after Eden. There's a remarkable physiological interpretation of the Garden of Eden that evinces a certain amount of anatomical knowledge of the part of Simon and his followers. Again, remember, this is sex magic, so you know that this is going to be about sex. Here, paradise is the womb, and the river is go going out of Eden is envisioned as the umbilical cord. Get this. This is awesome. The navel, i.e. the umbilical cord, he says, is divided into four channels, or the four elements. For on either side of the navel, two air ducts, the umbilical arteries, are stretched to convey the breath, and two veins to convey the blood. But when he says the navel going forth from the region of Eden is attached to the fetus in the epigraphic regions, that which is commonly called by everyone the navel, and the two veins by which the blood flows and is carried from the Edenic region uh, through what are the, called the gates, porta, of the liver, which nourishes the fetus. And the air ducts, which we say were channels for breath, embracing the bladder on either side of the region of the pelvis, are united at the great duct, which is called the dorsal aorta. The whole fetus is wrapped in an envelope called the amnion, and is nourished through the navel and receives the essence of the breath through the dorsal duct, as I have said. So, this is fascinating, and I'm, I want to dive into this kind of idea at some point again. I, again, I don't, I don't even know when these episodes are going to be coming out. I just know I'm, I'm working one at a time. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing the podcast two days a week now, and even that's not enough. If, uh, if I had the means to do daily episodes, I would, because there's so much. But I love this idea of the Garden of Eden being this primal state of a fetus in the womb. And this idea of birth as being the downfall, because in the womb, you're, the fetus is in this perfect state where anything is possible. And then once we, through the mother, gain the knowledge of reality but through the birth, that's our downfall. I really love that, because then the whole mythology changes. Then you can't blame a woman for giving you this apple, which, of course, is still your fault because you agreed to it. You gave it your authority. So it's still your fault regardless. But now that changes. Now the original sin simply comes from existence, from coming into the material realm. And so the purpose of life from there is to, for the soul to regain its original state and leave behind the physical body and re-enter into the fullness. I really love that. I think that's a, a fantastic analogy through things that we understand because these ideas are not just fairy tales. These encode the knowledge of understanding who we are. Now, I do want to leave you with one last image that I find fascinating. And again, this goes back to this whole thinking of you know, these the schools that understand the mysteries are evil or trying to control you or whatever. And again, some of these groups maybe have people like that, but it doesn't mean that they all do or that the knowledge implicitly implies that that's what they want to do with you. But I urge you to look up – what can you look up? You can look up uh, like M symbolism in painting maybe, something like that. And you'll find all sorts of images – throughout medieval paintings of famous people, right? You know, like Otto and Queen Elizabeth and uh, Da Vinci and Raphael and uh, dozens and dozens and hundreds of people. All the way up, as a matter of fact, I remember seeing a video where they go through all these paintings and end up on Hitler 
uh, because they're they're all throwing the same uh, quote unquote gang sign. Right, that's what we say nowadays. Throwing up gang signs. They're all throwing the same sign up, and the sign is a mudra. I talked about mudras very very early on. If you're a meditator, you're familiar with mudras. It's a, a hand position that you're doing during a meditation. I guarantee you, 99% of people that do meditation or yoga have no idea what the mudras mean, but they're very important because the mudras are combinations of the primordial elements. So each finger represents an element. There's five fingers because there's five elements. The Philosopher's Stone is right there in your hand. In like episode three or something, three or four, I was talking about this uh, this meditation that I do where I stay, stare at my hand for uh, for an hour at a time. And uh, and I, I got some replies back from people that are saying that was the stupidest thing they've ever heard. But here we are, 40 episodes later, and I'm explaining the meaning of this. This is why you do it. Because God is right there in the palm of your hand. Anyway, so in the mudras, each finger represents a different element. So you have uh, you know earth, air, fire, water, and then your middle finger is the ether, spirits, space, sky, uh, multiple different terms for this. Uh, anyway, so in, in all these paintings throughout you know the last uh, at least 500 years, I think most of these begin around the uh, the Enlightenment, and of course they would because this is when we're regaining this knowledge, right? I talked a little bit about this during the uh, Hermeticism unit in which I talked about the importance of the Hermetica being found and translated by the Medici into throwing Europe into a golden age of, of thought and reason and science and discovery because it was these ideas that gave them that. The ideas that led them through the, the Dark Ages didn't enlighten anybody. They were keeping people down, stupid. But the ideas of Hermeticism brought them into the light, the Enlightenment. They became awakened to the truth. And of course, some people had the mysteries discovered through these ideas, these interchanges. And a lot of these paintings are showing these folks up in power or artists or philosophers. I think even uh, you know, like Isaac Newton is, is pictured with this uh, hand sign, this mudra. And it, the mudra is very simple. Uh, it's basically, uh, you know the, uh, the the Vulcan thing, the Live Long and Prosper? It's similar to that, uh, except uh, instead of joining the two outer fingers, uh, so the, the ring and pinky with and the, those two are together, and then the middle and index are together. In this mudra, you have the middle finger and the ring finger joined together, and then the rest of the fingers are separate. On some of these, those two fingers are not just touching each other, but they're crossed over each other as well. Either way, they mean the same thing, because this, this is the union of, guess what? The ring finger being the earth element, and the middle finger being the ether, space, consciousness, the void, whatever. The union of mother and father. Of course it is. That's the mystery. And these people knew it. But then you get crazy conspiracy theories. They're all Illuminati. They're all uh, Freemasons, blah, 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 this, that, and the other. And maybe, yes, some of them were Freemasons, sure, but some of them weren't. And maybe some of them were Illuminati and some of them weren't. Do you even know what an Illuminati is? Do you know where that comes from? Probably not. Do your research. Don't listen to these idiots trying to deceive you. Always remember 
the truth goes much deeper than what you're shown. Even from people that are trying to reveal the truth to you. Some of these people don't care to reveal the truth. They want to reveal their truth. And it is up to you to use your authority and figure out if that truth is true with a lowercase t or true with an uppercase t. Because you can find capital T truth, but it is ultimately up to you. We are going to wrap it up here. I want to thank you all for listening. That went way longer than I thought, but I'm glad I got all that stuff out because it's important. Uh, and again, if you want to check out this book, it's called The Magdalene Mysteries. Fantastic. I can't remember the full name of it. So uh, The Magdalene Mysteries, The Left-Hand Path of the Divine Feminine, something like that. Uh, you can find it wherever books are sold. So just look up Magdalene Mysteries. I highly recommend it. Again, I'm going to be referencing it a lot moving forward, and uh, we'll be doing an episode on it at some point as well. So I would love for you to follow along. If you want to get in touch with me, of course, Twitter is the best place, at MindAlchemical. You can email martin at thealchemicalmind.com. That will wrap it up for this episode. Next one, we're going to go deep into tribalism and why this is the biggest hurdle to our understanding, to our gnosis, to our awakening. But I will wrap it up here. Again, thank you for listening. And as always, remember that you are it. (laughs) 